All right. Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm Elle and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hello, Podworld. I am really excited about this episode. It's something that I've been wanting to do for years and I'm glad we're finally getting to do it. Yes, and we have a very special guest today who I'm going to let introduce herself. Um, We are going to be talking... Actually, I'll let you take it away from here. (laughs) Who you are and what we're going to be talking about. Well, uh, happy to be here with you both. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. And uh, my name is uh, Rebecca Quinones-Piñon. I'm uh, the National Wildlife uh, Federation's Monarch Recovery Strategist, and also I, I am the Senior Manager for the Climate Resilient Habitats uh, Program for the organization, and super happy to be here with you guys. And there should be a we, doctor in front of there, shouldn't there? Yeah, we're excited. There <laughs> should be a doctor. You are totally right. Yeah, it, it took me some effort, so you're right. So I should add that to, to the title then. So that would yeah. be Dr. Rebecca Quinones Pino. There it is. Yes, we want to be respectful of the title in your Should studies. Should we call you time. Dr. Rebecca or Dr. Quinones? You're going to mess up her last name, so don't even do yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> no, he was All doing right. a really good job. Uh, but uh, uh, please feel free to call me Rebecca. Uh, I mean, we're in a That's relaxed fine. environment, and um, I know that sure. you guys are acknowledging the title, but right. no we don't mean to right. say it all the time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Perfect. Um, of course. All right. So let me let me kick this Time off. Out. I, no, no, I, no, 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 no. How what? did you get into your specific s- yeah, okay. study and in, in the yeah? How did how did you get to where you are today? What were, what were the steps or the stepping stones or how did you take this path? That's a great question, you know, and I, I can tell you that this was not a straight a straight uh, pathway. Um, sure. Definitely. Um, I, I, I can tell you that I was always very passionate about science and uh, about uh, wildlife conservation. Since a very early age, um, I remember asking uh, my parents to buy me scientific kits when I was in a, a, a child, you know, in my eight, ten mm-hmm. years of age, uh, I, I was not the 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 girl asking for the dolls and you know right. all those kind of things. So, and I always dream of me being always in a uh, laboratory wearing one of those white coats and glasses, you know, <laughs> and doing experiments. So that awesome. that was really clear for me, and and my passion about wildlife conservation was always there. I love watching all these wildlife conservation programs when when um, in my childhood, but um. um so my career has taken me in different directions when it comes to sure. wildlife conservation. And um, I ended up uh, studying hydrobiology. And from there, I, had a, I, I, I concluded a master's degree in environmental engineering, which I thought I was going to complement really well my, my college degree. And during that time, I focused on uh, working on once more uh, wildlife conservation, habitat protection, uh, using geographical information systems and remote sensing. And then uh, from there, that pathway took me to to, uh, my PhD in uh, geomatics engineering in uh, the University of Calgary in Canada. And that's where I, I start working again with uh, water conservation, which always was as well at the front of my my 
priority list and and so I focused on forest uh, hydrology, the the conservation of forests. I was really worried about habitat fragmentation or habitat loss. And yeah. then the connection with the monarch butterflies came at that time when I started talking to some groups in Mexico who were working on conserving the forests where the monarch butterfly overwinters. And and that's that's when everything started. You know, all those connections in the background and the experience that I acquired working on those different fields um, right. complemented really well with uh, working with the conservation of the monarch butterfly. That's fantastic. This is a dumb question. Are there monarchs in Canada? It's not too cold for them up there? Well, actually, summer, that's a, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great question. And yes, there are monarchs in Canada, at, at, uh, south of Canada, especially now the, the province of Ontario. Uh, ah, okay. So the east side, and there are some records, very uh, a few records on the west side as well, mm-hmm. and uh, the province of Alberta as well, and British okay. Columbia of uh, some monarchs that are uh, would be considered part of the Western monarch population okay. as well. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So is, is there a genetic difference between? Pardon me? I'm sorry. Is is there a genetic difference between the Western monarchs and the Eastern monarchs or any significant difference or just that that's a geographic uh, area that they hang out? In? They're not they're the same species. Is that right? That's another really good question. And thank you for bringing that up. Um, those two species uh, or those two populations are considered to be the same uh, species. There are some mm-hmm. records indicating that, in a studies indicating that there is a genetic difference between the monarchs that migrate and the monarchs that are non-migratory. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that study was uh, uh, made using migratory monarchs and monarchs that reside in Florida. So that study happened in, happened in 2014, and and that was the outcome of the, the study. So the migratory populations are the species or that we know as Danaos plexippus, subspecies plexippus. So that, that's the North American migratory population. So here's, a, here's the secret that you need to unlock for us. This migration is it based on some uh, magnetic compass uh, variations? Is it based like typically on thermal? Uh, is it based on some, where, how are they navigating? Well, it, it, it seems like the main, uh, let's say, compass that the monarchs use for migration is the, 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 the sunlight, the, the position uh-huh. of the sun. So there are some studies that were also recently published about the effects of the, the natural uh, light on how the, the monarchs direct themselves for the migration. So there are very specific indications that the, the position of the sun is indicating to the monarchs in which direction they should uh, move and and migrate. So that's why they rest at night because there is no light, but immediately 
in the morning as 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 soon as they have access to 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 the sun then they know in which direction they should be migrating and and maybe uh i'm giving you too much information at this point no, but no, no. I, You're fine. You're you know fine. this this study i just found that so fascinating because um, Dr. Patrick Guerra, who was one of the, the researchers involved in this study, um, was telling us that they were keeping some of the monarchs they were studying in some uh, barrels and, and they used some artificial light. So the monarchs were very, very um, receptive to the light. And sometimes they were just like turning on the light at one in the morning, for instance, and the monarchs immediately were just like moving around. And then they were like taking the position of the light as an indication in which direction they should be traveling. So definitely the, the, the light is, is one of uh, the main compasses that the monarchs use for, for migration. So they, and of they, course they, they have, they, they prop up. They practically have a built-in sextant, which is a navigation instrument used uh, by sailors a long time ago, where they're measuring the angle of the sun. Uh, but it's interesting that they use that same navigation to go back, and the sun is obviously in a different position in the fall than it is in in the spring. So that's kind of remarkable, and I guess that's a that's one of the natural uh, beauties that we need to still work on. Uh, it's go ahead. If I could interject, and uh, Dr. Rebecca, you may or may not be aware of this study that was done on a human. Um, it's about the circadian rhythm, and this I think it, the scientist himself actually put himself in this isolated cave um, with you know with regular electronic light on, but he didn't have access to time or no way of keeping time, and it was just to see how his body would naturally make its own rhythm. And it seems like with the butterflies, like they strictly respond to light. If there's light, they're, they're going to be active. If there's no light, they're not going to be active. So it doesn't matter what time of day it, tip, it necessarily is, just based off what you told us about that study. If there's light, they're going to be moving around, whether that light is at, you know present at 2 p.m. or 2 a.m., if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, that is correct. Um, the one of the issues that um, it was found, and in, in there is some similarities to what happens with uh, the uh, effects of uh, being exposed to light, like a human being mm -hmm. exposed to light, and the monarchs is that, you know, too much light, especially if it is at night, will make a human or this little insect tired and lose the energy that uh, we need and they need to continue their journey or whatever work uh, they are doing throughout the day. So right. there are no specific indications that they will get depressed as humans get depressed when they don't have enough sleep and, and they are exposed to artificial light at night. But um, mm -hmm. definitely there are any indications that the monarchs struggle if they have constant access to light. So that's the, the, the other reason why it is important to keep in mind that uh, the artificial light in urban areas will affect the migration of the monarch butterfly as well. I was just about to ask if light pollution is a problem in regards to their migration. <laughs> Indeed. Possibly. Yeah. Oh, wow. So... One of the things we talked about in migrating is, uh, I just found this out by watching a special, 
they have an operating temperature. In other words, they won't take off until their body reaches a certain temperature. Can you tell us a little more about that? You mean the the uh, the the temperature, how the weather temperature changes, and then they yeah, they're, they're start about, they have to right, they have to warm up to a certain temperature before they'll start to fly. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, that yes, that is correct. So in it's it's um they they need specific temperature so they can they can fly. And for instance, in in the overwintering areas, whether it is uh, for the Western Monarch in California or the Eastern Monarch that um, overwinters in South Central Mexico, you will uh, see that the monarchs are very static and they, they create these beautiful clusters where they create a specific microclimate so they can keep themselves safe and warm until the temperatures start increasing and so the environment is extremely quiet and you see the monarchs being very static. Once the, the, the sun comes out and they can feel the rays uh, of that light warming them up, then, then they start fluttering around and moving and looking for nectar and water. So they, if I remember well, the below 54 degrees, they, they become very, very static. And and this central location, you said it was central Mexico that they winter over in there. Is that right? Yes. Are, are yes. they uh, are they um, uh, being pro conservation by providing the area that is conducive for the monarchs to winter there and, and not deforesting that area? Are they protecting the area? I guess is the question I want to ask you. Yes, that that area, the uh, the overwintering sites in Mexico, which which are located in two main states in Mexico, the state of Mexico and the state of Michoacan, um, there is a very uh, well defined area that is known as the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve, and within this specific area, we have a buffer zone and we have a core zone. And within the core zone, you will find very specific places that are identified as, as the main areas where the monarch will preferably be found during the, the overwintering seasons. And we know those areas as colonies. So they, they create these colonies and some other people call them sanctuaries. So there are two very well-known and very popular sanctuaries around the world. One is El Rosario, and the other one is uh, uh, Sanctuary uh, Chinqua. And in those two areas, it, it is normally where you will find the majority of the, the, the monarchs of Berwyn train. Uh, yeah, I just looked that up. Um, it says... Monarch El Rosario Monarch Butterfly Preserve. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, uh, so they are, side. okay, they're, and uh, are uh, tourists allowed to go into the forest or, or like El Rosario, do they have a echo tour for to see the monarch butterflies, anything like that? Yes. Um, the season to start um, visiting those sites is, um, in November, sometime in November, depending when the monarchs arrive. 
but um, mm -hmm. um, El Rosario has been uh, set up as an as an area where uh, the public, the tourists, can go and visit the the monarchs. So there's a little bit of hiking, and uh, that people need to do. Some some of them take horses to go uphill. Mm -hmm to find the places where the monarchs are uh, overwintering. There are some very specific rules to visit the sites, like being very quiet, not touching the monarchs, uh, making sure that uh, we uh, look after where we step. So we don't step on the monarchs mm -hmm. as well, because they are Ooh, all yeah. over the place too. And um, it's, it's just a beautiful experience going to those sites. I have my personal concerns about those areas because, um, for instance, El Rosario has been in a constant development. Um, it's mm -hmm. one of the, the income sources for the communal landowners and or the local uh, people. And what happens is that the more developed development happens around that area of El Rosario, the monarchs have tend to go higher in altitude to find quiet places to overwinter. So we have to be very careful as well with uh, with uh, visiting those those sites as well and making sure that if we go visit, we are very respectful of that time when the monarchs are just there to rest and refuel and wait for the right temperatures again to start migrating north what what i'm looking at a picture from el rosario what kind of tree is that that they cling on to yes actually what's the ideal hab, uh, monarch habitat why don't we get into that yeah so I, i'll answer about the overwintering sites in um in mexico um that area is a pine oyamel mixed uh, forest and you will find different types of uh, or species of pine trees. One of them is called Pinolacio. It's one of the most uh, common uh, species in the area. There are other pine trees, but the, the one that the monarchs used to overwinter is the Oyamel tree, which is the Abies religiosa. And, and we don't know exactly why they love it so much. But another really interesting thing about this specific species is that this is the only place where it can be found. Uh, this oh, wow. pine mixed Oyamel forest is, is known as one of the remnant uh, areas of the boreal forest that used to come millions of, millions of years ago from all the way from Canada down to, to Mexico. So it's a fascinating area. And that's another really good reason to to protect the monarch butterfly biosphere reserve. And um, another interesting uh, fact about the the that area is that there are some other endemic species. So um, is that an um, technically an old growth forest? Sorry, that the reserve yeah, right. that that's would that technically be classified as old growth? I think that's the correct term for it. I can't remember. I might have messed that up. Well, definitely, it's an, it's a, it, it is an old forest, and um, mm -hmm. e yes, and it needs it needs to be protected. Right. Are monarchs like our fingerprints? There's no two alike, or are there some that have the same markings? And uh, uh, I don't, you, you know, what I'm saying. Are these? Are, is each monarch unique? 
in its markings and spots and lines, or is it not unique? Well, um, in in general, the 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 monarch butterfly, Danaus plexippus plexippus, um, they have a this beautiful orange color, and on top of it, mm-hmm. uh, you will find these uh, uh, black lines that are also known uh, as the the veins, and then the the white spots. So that's the typical. Uh, a marking that you will see in a monarch, and normally at the bottom, the 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 color is a little bit faded, so they look not as bright orange uh, at the bottom as they look on the on, on the top. And mm-hmm. uh, what happens, and maybe that's what you are seeing there, is that as the monarch ages, the the and they travel, they, their colors start fading, fading away. So when a monarch is just closing from its chrysalis, they, they will have this amazing, beautiful, bright orange color. And then as time passes and they travel and they're exposed to the weather and, and you know, different environmental uh, factors, those colors start kind of fading away. So that's an, another way for us to know that the monarch is a little bit old already. So what's their lifespan then? In general, um, the lifespan of uh, uh, the one of the first three or four uh, generations is about four to five weeks, and and, that, and when it, it is an adult. And then uh, the fourth or fifth generation, that is the one that is created in the Midwest uh, uh, at the end of the fall and travels all the way to Mexico and lives for about seven months. Um, uh, yeah, that's that, that would be the, the fifth generation, which um, normally we, we know that generation as the super generation, and some people call okay. that uh, as well the Methuselah. Mm, okay, interesting. So, the so, seven months um, like the longest period of time for them to be alive, and that would be only the fourth, fifth generation. Wow, okay, mm. interesting. Um, so speaking of generations, do uh and I know that milkweed is critical to the monarch butterfly. Is that for the caterpillar to eat or is that for the butterfly to eat? And tell us about the proper milkweed versus the improper milkweed. Okay, sure. Um, so the, the, the milkweed is crucial for the caterpillar. So there, there, we have the whole life cycle of the monarch butterfly. We know that they will start as an egg, and then we have the caterpillar, which goes through different stages or instars, and that's the one that needs the milkweed to grow and turn into a chrysalis. So um, it, the adult monarch butterflies sometimes uh, nectar on the milkweed, but it's uh, it's mostly because we know that the the milkweed, the native milkweed, is the host plant. That's how 
we will call that, you know, for butterflies, the host plants, mm -hmm. those that mm -hmm. host the eggs, and then they they make them turn into a pupa, uh, yeah, into caterpillars, and then into a chrysalis or pupa. Oh, so when it comes out of the, or like when Cocoon. it, I guess, like hatches, it can immediately just start feeding because it's on the right plant already. That makes sense. Uh, actually, yes, the egg. Yes. Yeah, right. when okay. the egg hatches and you have the first instar, the, the, that little one will be already placed in the, the right uh, host the plant, which would be the milkweed. So How the does the caterpillar look... create the cocoon? Is there some gland or secretion that they have that creates this? Uh, they have a metamorphosis process, which is amazing. And I will encourage everyone to look for some uh, YouTube videos to, to look at the process because it's just amazing. So they will go through a process where they... The, the skin, the outer skin will come off and then they will create this amazing, beautiful green chrysalis. And that's the other thing that's kind of funny. And please don't ask me why, but uh, experts say that uh, the monarch creates a chrysalis and not a pupa. And so, uh, uh, so don't ask okay. me why. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, so we go anyways. So, but um, so that's the process. They will remove the skin, and then they normally find a place, a higher place, where they will uh, uh, hang themselves after creating an amazing, let's call it hook, uh, created by um, a silk, which is extremely oh, strong. It's amazing. You can't really yeah. remove that monarch from there, and then they hang from that that uh, specific uh hook that I'm calling now is not not the proper term and then you will have the chrysalis that will will stay there for a few weeks and then you will turn into this amazing beautiful monarch adult uh, once they eat close. So while we're talking about this part uh, I need you to tell us about OE which I forget what it stands for but it's some disease that's affecting monarchs. Do you know about OE? Oh yes that is that is a what great is uh, term uh, yes, so OE is is a protozoa, and uh, OE stands for Ophryocystis electrocera, which is the species name of this uh, protozoa, and um, it's it's very aggressive. Uh, invades the the monarch butterfly uh, in a systemic way to a point that. Uh, it will definitely kill the monarch. And it can happen when they are in uh, the caterpillar stage at any any of the instars. And then they might be able to make it to the chrysalis stage, but then when they eclose, they will have many issues and most likely those adult monarchs will not survive. So, um, it, it, it's just a very, very aggressive protozoa. It's the best. You will find that protozoa in uh, milkweed. However, um, you were asking me about the, the proper milkweed and the, the milkweed that is not the, the most proper one. 
And it has been found that the non-native tropical milkweed, which is the Asclepias curasavica, is ah. the one that can have the, the highest uh, concentration of uh, OE. And the reason why it happens is because uh, the tropical milkweed, which once more is a non-native species to, to North America, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is a perennial plant. So it doesn't go oh. through the same process of, you know, becoming dormant during the fall. Yeah. And which that helps to to get rid of the OE for the non-native right. dormant. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it just remains and reproduces more in the in the tropical milkweed all the time, which is present all the time. So that right. that has a huge effect on the monarch population. And another big issue with tropical milkweed is that it has been proven that tropical milkweed prevents or halts the migration of the monarch butterfly, which no. we all really, really want to happen. Not only because right. it is important for the monarchs to survive, but also because the, another really good reason why the monarchs migrate is because that helps them to to maintain their gene flow uh, healthy. If they stop and they con- they continue to create these like non-migratory colonies here and there, they start inbreeding between them, and and that's mm. a big issue as well because yes, lack of genetic just... diversity. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's a problem. So that's why we always encourage people to focus on using native milkweed, native to our ecoregions to, to ensure that we are actually supporting and helping the monarch butterfly instead of using the non-native species like the tropical milkweed. So I'm looking at it right now, and it's actually a really pretty plant, this milkweed plant. Um, it looks like the native is more of like a dark pink to a blush color and that the tropical is more of an orange color. So I, I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe that's a, for our listeners out there to know if you're getting the correct milkweed versus incorrect, stay toward you want the pink one is correct and the orange is the tropical, If unless what I'm looking up is not correct. But would you kind of make that generalized statement or is that an okay well, general statement? I think it's common make? milkweed is what she's talking about. Well, uh, actually... Yeah, the in funny enough, the tropical milkweed is is Asclepias uh, curasavica is very similar to Asclepias tuberosa, which is ah, the green milkweed, is. and they look very similar. So both of them have uh, kind of like the the orangey flowers that you're talking about. Right. So I wouldn't go for the color ill, but okay. uh, there are many resources as well that. Uh, everyone can look online about the species right. that are native to to our areas. The National Wildlife Federation has the Native Plant Finder. Cersei Society has also a really good source that uh, uh, we created in collaboration with them about the, the different native milkweeds that we can find in our places. And, you know, the variety is amazing. They are so beautiful. Like that pink one that you're looking at. I mean, (laughs) I love those ones, the ones with the pink flowers, but also we have one with white flowers. In Texas, we have the Texas milkweed and we have the Cisotes. 
we have the, the green milkweed, um, there are uh, other species that you can find for the West as well, the Western monarch population, uh, gotcha. and, and help them there. Um, and I will add to our conversation that actually also there are some uh, species of milkweed that are uh, endangered species as well. One of them, um, oh, wow. it's, it's been under uh, assessment by Fish and Wildlife Service, the prostrate milkweed. And they, they are making a decision really soon about uh, the status of that species. And I can't oh, remember gosh. the name of the other species that in Missouri, uh, you can locate that species in the Missouri area in the Midwest. And that's definitely an endangered species as well. So there's a lot that we can well, do. Well, there's one here. Really... Says... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, yeah, no, these milkweed plants aren't really pretty. You're going to mess it up. Cer Cer I'm looking at the uh, NWF, their, their page, and it shows you. So yeah, guys, if you want to plant, make sure you're planting the correct milkweed and the correct indigenous milkweed. So I guess that's what you're looking for. You want the indigenous milkweed if you're going to be planting milkweed. You want whatever right. is indigenous to your right. area. <laughs> um, and I'll link, I'll link this page in our episode description. So I'm probably going to start getting some milkweed plants for myself. Um, so you can see like, you know, if you're in South Dakota versus California, Connecticut, you want to make sure you have the milkweed that's indigenous or to those states. And there's a whole list um, and it's great. And they're all, they're really pretty flowers. So yeah, it looks like a I, this, great this way to help. This one here is not native to Nevada. I've got to find Well, don't state. plant that one, obviously. Well, I, I, no kidding. Duh. All right. <laughs> Um, so why so shouldn't you touch a butterfly's a wings? No, 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 no. You don't get a question. You get a, you get to wait really quick. Because I remember as like a kid, some, you know, we were doing like science things and we'd be like, oh, don't touch their wings. I mean, obviously I know they're very fragile and delicate creatures. And in general, our rule is touch with your eyes. But why is it so detrimental for a butterfly if you touch it or its wings specifically? Well, you know, the monarchs, uh, in, I, I will focus on the monarchs and they, they, their wings are made of scales, what we know as scales. Oh, so the more, yeah. the more we're touching and handling the monarch, the more we can harm those scales and they have a purpose. Gotcha. Uh, right. So that would be one reason why is, it is not very convenient to handle the monarchs. The other reason is because the monarchs taste with their, their, their feet. So, oh, right. so if we have lotion in our hands or some creams or grease or, you know, oil right. that, that right. will stick to the, their feet and then they will have a really, really hard time, um, using their feet for tasting nectar or tasting water. So it's really important okay. to leave them alone. And, uh, sometimes I see beautiful photos of course you know like holding monarchs and putting monarchs in your face and and it's really nice and we enjoy it you know but i mean i, I bet the monarchs are not enjoying it that much so no, we really need to respect this, like, and give them their space you know and yeah make sure that i'm on them now Ugh. right so oh, the best day. thing is not to handle the monarchs and i can tell you that in the state of california where you guys are and yeah definitely uh, uh it, it, it is illegal to handle monarchs. Yeah, it is. Wow. It is definitely illegal. So no ra raising monarchs at home or anything. This is totally illegal. 
Now, what if one lands on like your shirt? What's the best thing to do? Just kind of let it sit there until it decides to fly away or, you know, gently kind of relocate it to a plant or what should you do in that situation? Because, you know, there's, there are those freak situations where it's like, oh, a butterfly landed on me. <laughs> I would just let it be, you know, just enjoy the moment. Right. Yeah. Sure. Catch that moment. And then um, I'm sure the butterfly will fly, fly away soon. Yeah. Okay, so here I have a question for you. Yes, in you can this, ask your uh, question now. from uh, the World Wildlife Federation, it says um, uh, Western monarchs have declined uh, by over 99% since 1980, and we're still Eek. falling way short of our five-year annual average of 500,000 butterflies needed for the recovery of the species. How are these senses being performed, Rebecca? How is those uh, the the you mean the counting of the monarch and the yes, the mm -hmm. counting, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. so the five hundred thousand that uh, we mentioned uh, in that article or uh, PR, it's uh, related to the Western monarch. So, and that's another really interesting question. So, I thank you for asking that. When it comes to the Western uh, monarch population counting. Um, it, it starts a society who is in charge of that um, has many great passionate volunteers who um, take care of going to the sites where the monarchs overwinter and they stay um, they they observe the monarchs overwintering there they count they bring their binoculars and they count all the monarchs that that they are seeing in those overwintering sites uh, and they they have a specific uh, charts that they need to complete and they send them to Cersei society and then Cersei society does the final count and they have some rules for uh, making sure that they um, the information that is reported to them by their volunteers meets some standards. And that's how we get the count for the, the Western monarch population. In uh, the overwintering sites in Mexico is a completely different story. Um, uh, back in the 80s, uh, Bill Calvert, a scientist that created a, a, a specific method or technique to do the counting because it was more complex. The monarchs are more dispersed and we're talking about a denser forest. So it was very difficult to try to, to count all the monarchs that are in a specific cluster. So the method that uh, uh, Bill Calvert uh, uh, developed is about doing an estimate of the monarchs that they can see per hectare. So, um, there are some other groups, volunteer groups in Mexico who go to, to the reserve and then they measure those areas where they see the monarchs overwintering and based on some calculations um, developed by, by uh, Bill Calvert, they will report not the numbers of monarchs that they are seeing on the sites, but they will report the size or the, the total acreage or, uh, or area that they are occupying. So we're talking about two totally different numbers here. One is based on the Got number it. of monarchs and the other one is based on the total area that they occupy when they are overwintering. Is um, when they're overwintering, they're in a central location, but when they disperse, 
for the summertime, are they going to a specific location or are they just going north? How, how does that work? They, they, the, the Eastern monarch population comes back north and the east, of course, they tend to have some uh, slight turning into the the western side of the that's it's going to sound kind of funny, but then the western side of the the east, right? Or they go more, more to the coast side, the Gulf of Mexico. But they tend they definitely go north until they reach out the Midwest and the south part, the southeast part of uh, Canada. And that will take three, literally like two or three generations to get to the Midwest. Once they get to the Midwest, they, they, they will breed again in that area in the Midwest. And then they will come back as the fourth or, or fifth generation to overwinter, overwinter again in Mexico. With the the Western population, uh, they most of the population will stay in in the California coast overwintering, and in the spring they move they will move back up north on the western side of the Rocky Mountains. So they will be breeding in all those areas, and then once more once the, the fall comes they will start turning back again to overwintering in California. And as I said before, some of those monarchs can make it all the way to, to Alberta uh, and, and British Columbia. And some of the Western monarchs also um, could make it all the way to Mexico, uh, which is quite interesting and also, it's just amazing because that also helps with the, the gene flow. So when the two populations meet. So basically, in the center of the country, we there's we don't see uh, monarchs too much, uh, like coming up through the middle of the, the United States. They're pretty much coastal. Is that a correct assumption? I didn't hear you well there. Do you mind repeating oh. the question? I'm sorry. So basically, we have the east and the west. Are there monarchs that fly up through the center of the country, or do they just stay on the uh, you know east and west coasts? They they don't go to the 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 center of the country. That's a great question. I never thought about it. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Oh, not a problem. Not a problem. Um, so I was just. It's interesting that you mentioned this Zeus Zeus Society. Is am I pronouncing that right? Zeus. <laughs> Cersei Society, yes. Cersei. I, I just pulled up a um, um, document that they put out, which is a common a guide to common milkweeds of Nevada. So, because uh, I live in Nevada, Ellie, but Bunny lives in California. So they're talking about the spider milkweed, the pallid milkweed or Davis milkweed, desert milkweed, narrow-leaved milkweed, and the showy milkweed as being uh, all the different species that supposedly benefit monarchs. I, we have seen some monarchs here in, in the desert. I would love to see more. And I will tell we'll start you- start planting milkweed. Well, I'm gonna do that. When I grew up in New York City, we used to see a lot of monarchs and then they just, you didn't see very many. Uh, yeah, so what, 
What do you, what's attributed to their unfortunate? I don't want to know. I don't know if mass die off is the correct word, but to the significant population decline to where it's like, oh crap, we really have a problem here. We need to do a massive overhaul to preserve what we do have and sustain this population. So what uh, your uh, dad is mentioning is is something that we unfortunately hear constantly now. You know, oh, no. that, uh, yeah, we used to see monarchs, you know, hundreds of thousands and like seeing the monarchs and like big clouds just traveling. And now we don't see any. So that's that's extremely sad. And that's that's another um, uh, view that you don't experience anymore in the overwintering sites. I, I used to go there in my late uh, teens and and it was a complete different landscape the the density of the monarch butterflies that we used to see there and, and it, it was just incredible so it it's just really sad to see that those numbers are no more and the reasons why we're seeing this huge decline on uh, the monarch population are uh, first of all um, attributed to the habitat loss and fragmentation. Yeah, That's a big issue. Um, urbanization, of course, has contributed greatly to this. And also the fact that a, a more agricultural land is, is, is needed so we can feed, feed all the humankind. That's another reason why we have lost uh, some of the, the, the monarch habitat, the native habitat. And also the the heavy use of pesticides, as well as the climate change that has exacerbated as well the the fragmentation or loss loss of habitat, are at the top of the list of why the yeah. the monarch population has has declined. Well, wow. it's a it's a common theme that we hear all yeah, the time it's... about a lot of animals that uh, are becoming endangered and. Uh, uh, would would you? How would you rate currently the uh, population? Is it is it stable? Is it increasing? Is it still diminishing? What would what was your what's your assessment on that? That's a great question. Thank you. You know, it's 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 difficult to. To answer, I can tell you that um, since 2014, more efforts and more concern about the the the, the steep declines of the monarch population um, have brought attention to the importance of conserving and protecting the species. So more conservation efforts have been made, created since then. Uh, but still, there's a lot of work to do. We we have seen, I, I will give you a really good example. And with the, the Western monarch population, of, of a couple of years ago, we, we see we, the population declining to the point that only 1,914 monarchs were counted in the California Ooh. overwintering sites. Uh, after yeah. seeing millions of monarchs in previous years, or 1.2 million at some point, and then suddenly we just have less than 2,000. 
you know, it was like a, a, a decline of almost a 99%. And then the next year, yeah. we, we experienced this amazing peak of like 200,000 monarchs or so, which is great. So it, and which gives, gives us hope. However, I try to be very careful when it comes to, to giving a message to, to the public because mm-hmm. this doesn't mean that we or the monarch is out of the woods. There's still a lot of work to do to ensure that the monarch is reaching a, a stable um, population that can tell us that now it is okay and it will survive. So we need to continue working and not just because we're seeing this peak of monarchs say, okay, now, now everything is good and we should just rest. We did our job. I think there's still a lot of work to do to conserve the monarch. So I'm trying to acknowledge the the efforts that we all are doing. However, I still feel like there is a lot of work to do with the Eastern monarch population is the same story. Some years we have seen some increases, um, but but still the increases are not comparable to what we used to see uh, 10, 20 years ago. Now, hmm. being realistic, we cannot expect those numbers to go back to the millions or the several hectares of occupancy for the Eastern monarch population, because we we know that it's going to be extremely complex for us to recover all the habitat that has been lost. But there should be some uh, collaborative effort, a community effort to ensure that somehow we can increase those habitats. And not only for monarchs, you were just mentioning other wildlife species that are struggling because they are losing their habitat. So the beauty of working with the monarch butterfly as well is that we are not only helping one species, we're helping many other species that are using the same the same habitat. So it's it's it's, it's a collaborative and and all wildlife effort. Got it. Interesting. It's gonna be nice to know if you know if saving one species also helps save other species as well, which it's going to be nice to kind of know that it's not a, uh, just kind of a one-stop, well, not a one-stop shop, but, you know, oh, if we do this, this is only going to save the monarchs. It's like, actually, this helps everybody <laughs> if we save these areas. You're kind of low, uh, Bunny. Oh, how, oh sorry. How so about now? That's better. Are there monarchs in any other countries uh, of the world besides Mexico, United States, and Canada? Yes, there are. Um... There are monarchs in other countries. Uh, some of them were um, introduced to those those countries, and they are non-migratory species, or uh, they are uh-huh. non-migratory populations of the the monarch butterfly. I shouldn't say species. There are some uh, subspecies. There are like about six subspecies of the monarch butterfly, Danaos plexippus. Uh, that you can find in, for instance, in South America. There is one very specific to Puerto Rico, for instance. There is a non-migratory species in uh, Hawaii. Um, You can find monarchs in uh, uh, Australia, for instance, as well, and uh, other parts in Europe. 
So yeah, but the the thing is that those monarchs are non-migratory monarchs. Well, we absolutely must save the monarchs. There's no question about it. We can't let the monarch go extinct in our lifetime or any lifetime. I Can couldn't agree with you the, more. Uh, yeah. Could you maybe tell us about the uh, monarch stewards? Sure. Yeah. The National Wildlife Federation's Monarch Steward Certification Program uh, was created in 2018 with the main goal of um, um, training uh, the public and, uh, you know, gaining the knowledge and being trained as uh, people who can help us to, to advance monarch conservation efforts on the ground. So the certification program is uh, comprised by three main workshops. The first workshop we focused on uh, teaching or participants about the ecology and the biology of the monarch butterfly. Um, we go a little bit into the physiology as well, threats to the monarchs, ways to help the monarchs, all the general basics, you know, we call that the train the trainer. And we ask our participants to ensure that they pass that information to others and that they seek for opportunities for them to, to teach in, in some other classes or give presentations or go to festivals and have a table with information about how to conserve the monarch. The second workshop is about monarch citizen science. And in that workshop, we encourage people to become citizen or community scientists so they can help us collecting information that is required for uh, research purposes. So we teach them about how to test the 4OE, for instance, and how to report that information to the, to the Monarch Project Lab. Uh, we teach them techniques to survey uh, for uh, milkweed and survey monarchs in different uh, spaces. So, and also, uh, they they learn how to net monarchs, tag them, and release them, which is part of the Monarch Watch program as well. And it helps us to track the monarchs and what's the migration pathway of the 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 western monarch, the eastern monarch butterfly. So that's mostly uh, the the second workshop, and the third workshop is focused on <clears throat> how people can start creating their own gardens using native plants. And in that workshop is pretty cool. It's, uh, we call it Gardening for Monarchs and Other Wildlife Using Native Plants. And that's a 14 hour workshop. So we divide it in two days and uh, people learn about how to design their own gardens, how to identify uh, native species to their uh, ecoregions and, and uh, how to maintain those gardens as well in and best practices to to create native gardens okay excellent so what are some really quick before we wrap up here what are natural threats and predators of the monarch humans that's not natural <laughs> that's yeah anyway so you know another other threats are um we have 
for instance, um, uh, there are some insects. It, it depends of the the life stage of the monarch, you sure. know. But um, sure. and in when they are um, um, caterpillars, there are some uh, flies that can infest them. They lay their eggs on okay. uh, the monarchs, and so the eggs grow inside of them, and then the monarch unfortunately won't make it to its uh, last uh, stage. Uh, wasps love to eat monarchs. I don't know why, but they, really? they love eating the, the monarchs. In I think birds in the, like to eat butterflies too, don't they? Yeah, you know, the, the, the monarch, especially in, in the north, when it, in the, the breeding areas, give me one second. I needed to clear my throat. Uh, the monarchs, when they're in their, their breeding areas, um, they don't have that many. They have predators, but not that many. And I'll tell you why. That's the other beauty of uh, uh, native milkweed. Um, the milkweed has a chemical, a natural chemical called cardenolites. So when the monarchs are eating and feeding themselves with the, the, the host plant, the milkweed, they, they absorb those cardenolites. It becomes systemic. And they, the monarchs, when they become adults, they, they are toxic to other species, especially birds. Oh. So if birds okay. eat those monarchs, they become sick. So That's many, many, yes, yeah. So the birds learn the lesson, and they don't eat the monarchs. And, and so, mm -hmm. and the the way that they they can identify the monarch and say, I know that if I eat this this animal, I'm going to get sick, is because of the colors. So that's the other reason why the monarchs are so bright and beautiful because they are telling other species, if you eat me, I'm gonna make you sick. When they, they get to the monarch butterfly uh, biosphere reserve, the oriole, the bird oriole, um, we don't know why, but it's, it has become extremely smart about predating on the monarch. So oh. they, they learn what uh, pieces of uh, the body of the monarch butterfly are not that toxic, and they tend uh -huh. to only eat those those. Um, those pieces of the monarch's body, but in general, uh, I mean, the monarch is 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 toxic to other animals because of the cardenolites. Excellent. Well, that's a good uh, defense mechanism. Yeah, we certainly appreciate Excellent. your time. It's been wonderful. It's been enlightening. I'm going to make sure my wife plants proper milkweed for around our house. Why don't you do it? Well, I got to find where to get it, but that's I'm, I printed out this seven-page guide, and uh, we'll get on that and do our share to help the monarchs. Because, as I said, I remember seeing a ton of them when I was younger, living in even New York City. They went they, there was lots of them in New York City, uh, and then there wasn't. So I always well, question what happened to them. But we'll we'll hopefully recover now that we're building awareness. And uh, that's the key uh, beginning stage is to build awareness and hopefully everybody uh, joins in and helps us replenish the monarch livestock. But, but uh, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And we certainly appreciate it.
Yes, I've got all kinds well, of little notes and stuff here. <laughs> no, I, I, I really, really thank you for this time. I, I enjoyed so much uh, chatting with you guys. And um, I appreciate that you are helping us to uh, raise awareness and um, yes. elevate the issues that the monarch is facing to, to survive. Um, I uh, I appreciate that you are now willing to plant some native milkweed. And I will just add that, you know, even a very, very tiny, small space of uh, native nectars and uh, including some native milkweed will be of great help. That's another thing that we have learned. So you don't have to have an like, um, amazing, huge garden or you don't have to have, you know, hectares, all hectares of land to, to make the difference. We all can make the difference, even in an urban area. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank really you for your time to, and expertise. Are, do you have any workshops coming up that our listeners can attend? Yeah, actually, we have, um, and I will be posting really soon, the uh, registration pages for the uh, Gardening for Monarchs and Other Wildlife uh, with uh, Native Great. Plants. It's going to okay. be June the 21st and June the 23rd. As I said, this is a 14-hour workshop, so we divide it in mm -hmm. two days. We leave one day in between so people can, you know, also refuel. Re-energize and come back the next day to keep learning, and I will be happy to share that um, link yes, with you. Do. We Absolutely. are in the process as well of uh, updating the Monarch Stewards certification program page, so we can mm -hmm. make sure that we have a calendar there as well, uh, so people can join the 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 future workshops, and and it'll be great if if others can can join us too. Absolutely. Um, to learn about the monarchs and those workshops. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you really so much. We appreciate your knowledge. Your time. We're definitely it's been great. To, yeah, when those workshops come up, definitely let us know. We'll have to make sure. Yeah. We'll put that out to all Thank our you. listeners. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was right. so nice we meeting will... you both. Very Likewise. nice meeting you. Likewise. And if you and guys need so anything good. else, let me know. Very yeah. good. Appreciate your time and expertise. Well, Otto, do you approve of this week's episode? <laughs>